0: Welcome to Unsolicited Bridge Picks. I am your host, Charles, and with me is... Gabrielle. Bree. One of the two. (laughs) We took a very purposeful extended vacation. (laughs) Summer vacation. And our summer vacation ended um, mid-June. By the time you hear this, it'll probably be late July. Okay. (laughs) Early July, fine.
1: Oh, I was going to say it was going to... It was like September,
0: you know? Oh, oh, okay. Maybe. But we're back. And we are ready to be... The downers you've always needed in your life.
1: Should I give excuses as to what we've been off doing?
0: Okay. Go. I'm listening.
1: I have I've got nothing. You've been working, working on this project that we're gonna talk about.
0: I've also been working for the Pentagon.
1: I've just been taking care of kids. That's it.
0: Yeah, as a CIA agent.
1: Yeah. I've been purposefully running studies on the effects of putting children in cages close to the Canadian border.
0: For the CIA, though, they're (laughs) they're funding this.
1: So today, we're really excited about one of the projects that has been in our minds and occupying some of our energy and time, and that is starting a local media co-op.
0: Hell yeah. And it's more than just the two of us, so... Technically, this podcast yeah, is this a Yeah, this podcast
1: is a co-op. Yep.
0: I, I actually sold my shares.
1: Oh, shoot.
0: Yeah. So <laughs> in our photo that we use or whatever, the logo, I sold it as an NFT. So we don't even have the rights to that anymore. <laughs>
1: Uh, Sorry, sorry about that. Yeah, so we're really excited about that. And we're going to talk today about what has motivated us in particular, of course, but also just kind of in general, the feelings of other co-op members, what we see happening in Vermont in its media landscape and what we would like to see.
0: Yeah, because if you're listening, maybe you don't always agree with us and you're thinking I love VPR and Seven Days and sometimes Vermont Digger and occasionally WCAX and once in a while the free press and every so often uh, NBC5, is that
1: it? Yeah. Like, have
0: I gotten all of them?
1: How about Williston Observer, Hometown?
0: I, uh, hometown is free <laughs> press. I'm not getting into the, the small locals. That's... Uh, That's a whole other fucking issue. You might be saying you really enjoy those local media outlets that you read. That you uh, trust. That you trust. And we're here to tell you, don't trust them or read them. In fact, only listen to us. (laughs) Don't do anything we don't tell you to do. Uh, And now we're getting into cult territory. I think that.
1: I think the thing is that a lot of the listeners might feel like they're pretty savvy and they can kind of deflect all of the shit and the bias that's coming to you through traditional media outlets or even independent media outlets, whatever. You think that you can kind of weed out that more insidious bullshit. But the thing is, the thing is that it's so interwoven. It's so it's so mm. woven into not only the way that things are said and the things that are said, but the very premise of journalism in these traditional media outlets.
0: There is an antidote and it's not listening to our podcast. It's being an yeah, unrepentant crank and just you read anything, don't trust it ever. That's via That's my advice.
1: So we'd like to give people options, basically, and we'd like to rethink journalism as we know it. But let's not get ahead of ourselves too much, no, and so no, we no, we'll just jump into uh, to the episode, shall we?
0: Several local activists, organizers, and leftists have come together to create a media collective in the Chittenden County area. Bree and I are both members of this group, and today on Unsolicited Bridge Picks, we are going to look at more recent history of how local media has really failed the working class and those not in the business landlord politician nexus, why we have decided to embark on this collective project and what we are hoping to get out of this collective.
1: Yeah. So local media doesn't exist in isolation from national media. And much of what we see locally reflects the national reckoning that's happening in journalism. For example, at the beginning of this month, NPR's Mary Louise Kelly had a three part segment about journalism's shifting role in our democracy. Given that the public doesn't agree on one set of facts or what truth might be, the public also doesn't have confidence in the mainstream media and no longer is willing to believe that journalists can somehow maintain neutrality or objectivity, given that simply identifying an event or story as newsworthy Simply identifying one person as an expert or not is inherently imposing your beliefs and opinions. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, traditional media, whether it's local or national, has an established relationship with power that is difficult to break, especially when it's beholden to corporations and the wealthy for funding, and it's beholden to politicians and the ruling class for their expertise. That. Being said, you know what's coming next, which is, of course, for expert.
0: <laughs> it's no. mind over matter. Don't believe those phony degrees. I am a construction expert, <laughs> a deep water diving expert, and an ant expert.
1: An ant or an aunt? Both, actually. <laughs> yeah. We all know Vermont is terrific and has terrific journalism. Some of the best. I mean, y- yes.
0: Some of my best friends are journalists. In Vermont. We often uh, hear of all the accolades that our local media receives, whether that be Vermont Digger, Seven Days, or VPR. We are told that they are independent, and therefore, they are good. They focus on local news, they are the fourth estate, and they hold politicians and those in power accountable. And yet, uh, because of how their organizations are funded, because of their entire business model... When we take a critical look at local media, we often find that they have the same tendencies as national mainstream liberal media, which means that they don't only give a path to those powered, but they never really question capitalists or capitalism as an ideology in general. And why would they?
1: Yeah. Well, I would add that beyond just the funding and the business models, as I was hinting a minute ago, there are certain sacred tenets of journalism that limit the extent to which The full, most true, most complete or accurate picture can be presented.
0: Rule number one is you never actually interview tenants. That's the first tenant of the (laughs) journal. It's the
1: first tenant of, yeah, exactly, exactly. Because are they experts? Meh. Um, Again, many journalists see this work that they do as, you know, the fourth estate. They see this work as noble and paramount to the functioning of our democracy, right? They see it as, you know, the NPR segment that we were just talking about was within a project called We Hold These Truths. And yet some of the core tenets like neutrality and objectivity or trustworthiness or relationship building and community confidence have proved again and again unattainable or inadequate.
0: It's all about the cliques. It's, it's all a- about the Benjamins.
1: The thing is, so even just looking at this as like an extension, calling the news media the fourth estate, right?
0: I'm going to put a hard uh, estate tax on that estate. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, wh- what is that part of? It's supposed to be part of the checks and balances that keep the ruling classes oh, functioning. Oh, is it like
0: the three branches and they're like the fourth? Yeah. They're, so- like, they're kind of like the deep state. The fourth deepest thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, but so so the, the whole thing is like, if, if you actually are going to look at the media as jumping into the legislative and judicial and executive branches and working t- to keep all those other things in check, it makes sense that there's this vested interest in keeping the ruling class happy because the ruling class is not going to change just because you criticize them, right? It's not going to change just because you try to hold them to account. If you try to hold them to account and piss them off, you're just going to be cut off. <laughs> I mean, like we've we this is a thing like coming out of the Trump era. We saw when you tried to hold an executive branch to account, this is like in an exaggerated manner, right? They're just going to call you fake news and completely discredit you and cause like this crisis that we are in right now. But it's not like politicians You know, politicians have always done that in more subtle ways, right? You ask them a Mm -hmm. question and they just respond with the same bullshit that's in their press release. And if you press them further, you get these cookie cutter answers that completely evade your questions. So most journalists continue to allow those in power to set the frame of the conversation and to establish what the boundaries are.
0: Yeah, I would add that. One of the reasons Donald Trump is so reviled and there's many but I think within like the the media why he's so reviled is because he exposed the farce that an NC and then he took away the mask and showed that the media doesn't actually have any real legitimate power. Or at least the way it functions now, it doesn't have any legitimate power over government. Anyhow, Anyhow, uh, so we got the the local media, the the independent darlings. We've also have more mainstream national owned local affiliates. We got WCAX and the Burlington Free Press. These two organizations have not only been cut to the bone, but in the case of the free press, they operate behind a paywall, which is always so fun to be like, we're this journalistic organization that we're so important, but you have to be willing to pay if you want to learn anything. And then we have WCAX, which literally exists just for clicks, <laughs> and will do whatever it takes to present news as a one-sided clickbaity anger fest as possible. If you want to know what that means, uh, go find WCAX on Facebook and just I, look exactly. at any of the comments. Like they they understand the Facebook algorithm better better than almost any other news organization. Yeah. And while the form of these two groups of journalist organizations are Different, they function very similarly. The for-profit news organizations all require advertising to sustain them. Who is advertising in those papers? It's going to be national corporations, local corporations, local developers, maybe politicians. And while the free press does charge for its paper, they, Seven Days and WCAX, are, of course, influenced by their advertisers.
1: Seven Days runs stories that are sponsored, for example, by the Palmerlows, right?
0: Oh, they do the whole Yeah, and that's that's a bigger thing that's been coming out everywhere. So in like the past it's not like even it's not years, but
1: it's not an advertisement, it's not a sponsored fine, necessarily. It's like
0: Ponglo actually... pays one of their journalists to write a news article and then they'll be like sponsored by Ponglo. It's yeah. an advertisement, but it looks functional. But it, looks it looks literally the like same. News. Uh-huh. And that's like the better version of that. But even even when it's not that overt, it's still You don't want to anchor a certain class of people, right? Like Seven Days often writes about local restaurants, local businesses. You know, if they took a more critical role, they would stop getting access. They would stop getting advertising.
1: Yeah. Can you imagine like a 6,000 word piece being written, shitting on the bows, uh, shitting on the bows? the way that the Battery Street protesters were shat on. I mean, like burning the paper, it doesn't do anything, right? It doesn't- You know,
0: they were upset about the paper being burned, but people don't realize the Boves put seven days into their pasta sauce and meatballs as filler. So <laughs> yeah, for, for, for them to be angry and, and burning the paper, But it's at, the least, thing like, at least we're not eating the paper.
1: It would be considered unprofessional journalism to try to expose different politicians in the state as being patently absurd or like, mm. like Del Pozo, he, you're, you're, he's giving, a fucking clown. You're giving it all pack. away.
0: You're giving it he's, all okay, away. Okay.
1: Yeah. But he, he's a he fucking clown. A fucking right? So if you were time. to write about how patently absurd it is for him to compare lying to reporters to like being asked if he farted at a party, like the guy's a clown, you could just be like Del Pozo the clown and like <laughs> do this, this cartoonish caricature of him. Right. But why don't they do that? Why do they do it about Battery Street protesters?
0: I don't want to jump ahead, but the the fact of the matter is one of those groups gives them access to do their job easily. To write stories that are easy to write. Yep. More on that in a bit. At the end of the day, these organizations, they they have to be pro-capitalism as they are mouthpieces for capital and literally exist because of capitalists. Even if that wasn't the way that they make most of their money, Seven Days has tried to solicit some donations. The organizations themselves exist in a a rigid hierarchy, right? Where where the bosses are in charge. They often own the company. Maybe the employees have a stake, but they don't Mm -hmm. make real decisions. The bosses make money off the labor of their reporters, most of whom are paid incredibly poorly, even when they're unionized. I mean, as an an example, Vermont Digger has a union, uh, a guild, and yet they themselves are still poorly paid, right? It's rare for a, a journalist in this state to stick around for more than, what, three, five years. But it also means that they jump around, you know, to the main three liberal news organizations for a diggers that would until they either move away, quit journalism, or become an editor until they retire. Hmm. One of my favorite examples of how influenced by business a newspaper is, is the Seven Daisies, which is this mm-hmm. event where everyone votes on their favorite ice cream shop and blah 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 and then all the winners get to come to a special event which has often been at echo and what i've heard is that the 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 restaurants that cater do it for free right genius they get this exposure oh well, all these politicians and all these you know the ponderlos will be there redstone blah 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 and so like i mean the seven days is the the prime example of that
1: it's not even like a charity event it's just no it's I mean, just no it's not a charity
0: event you get an award you get a photo i mean it's it's smart it's free advertising right you have to fill out like 80 different fucking things before you can pass a vote so like your friend who's in a band who's like oh please do it and you're like no i'm not i'm sorry the nonprofit journalist organizations their relationship to capital is less clear but is often still a direct relationship VPR and Vermont Digger both take money from foundations, organizations which are created by super wealthy capitalists. And those organizations are created so they don't have to pay taxes and they can influence policy and news. And of course, it works. Hmm. Uh, Wait, but you're these... saying that
1: this is like VPR underwriters, like the Vermont Department of Labor and like.
0: See, what's so great is they call it underwriters. That's not advertising, right?
1: No, they're, it's, just they're, they're supporting. And then like every once in a while, somebody will come on and say, become a VPR underwriter. We did this and it's great. We've gotten so much business because, you know, listeners are really engaged.
0: But that's somehow different the than advertising.
1: Yeah, they're underwriters. <laughs> but you're saying that somehow the fact that the Vermont Department of Labor is an underwriter for VPR that fucks VPR over and and compromises them
0: just just a little bit but it's a more benign example right often these foundations can include foundations like the ford foundation which has a history of supporting cia coups in other countries so i mean
1: you hear all the time like amazon underwrites npr or like yeah know, like-
0: and that's the the, the thing is, is oftentimes they'll be underwritten by some of the the most grotesque capitalist organizations whether that's mm-hmm. amazon whether that's like quicken loans so even when it's not foundations, it's still just terrible, terrible organizations. And on top of this, uh, these organizations are very hierarchical and still, of course, end up being influenced by either their largest donors, their board of trustees, or the people at the top, their CEOs.
1: I feel like it's difficult to feather out some of these things, right? Because they're not-for-profit organizations.
0: They can't be bad.
1: No, no, no. But I mean, like, they need to make money somehow because people need to get paid, you know, to, to do the work of being a journalist,
0: Right. I mean, our co-op is trying to prove otherwise. I get what you're saying. Yes.
1: even our, our podcast, like we have Patreon subscribers.
0: Yeah, I quit my job because of them. Thank you, yeah. by the way.
1: But like, at what, what point does it mean that because of the people who are giving us money, we're beholden to them? Like, at what point does that influence what we I, say?
0: I think the point where the money they're giving is at least four figures if not higher, and at the point where you know their names and not because they're like your friends or something. In Vermont, it's a small state, so it's not the best example, but like.
1: Yes, I'm like trying to tease out those kinds of things, but mm-hmm. also thinking about is the problem with journalism fundamentally that it's that it's funded or can journalism be funded so that people this is where you get to like the kind of reductive thinking about like, well, no, capitalism permeates everything and fucks us all over. Right. But like, is there a way that journalists can avoid being swayed by the way that their organization is funded? And this is one of the things that we, we've we had in conversation with VPR, for example. One of the things that Pitpeen brought up was you guys are producing things for an audience, partially because the audience is funding VPR, right? Yeah. So so that's that's another aspect of this nonprofit organization, VPR, at least this is what Pipfine was positing that by being funded by your public or by needing that audience, you're also catering to that audience. I mean, you might be catering to that audience naturally anyway, but any, I sorry, I guess I don't know where I'm going no, with this, no, but I'm no, like I, trying to think about what, what does it mean to not be influenced by your audience or by a certain public, or does it matter as long as you're openly not trying to be objective or neutral?
0: Yeah, I guess it's a good question. I think it, Funding can only work if an organization is very open and transparent and honest about what their values are is and it? what their ideology or their perspective is, right? I think that's the, the biggest issue here is that if all these, these news organizations said, Yeah, we believe capitalism works, that was in their mission statement, that would be an entirely different story. But they don't say that, right? Their idea is that you never say that because journalism is objective or as objective as can be or as least right. biased as possible. And so I think. There's just a lack of honesty. I think that that is baked into it. Yeah. I think if an organization were to say we are pro-capitalist, they would cease to exist because they're acknowledging the hegemony and everything that permeates our society.
1: Yeah. I, if I you mean,
0: if you acknowledge capitalism exists, you automatically then have to be a communist. I mean, unless you're one of those like, you know, Reason magazine or something.
1: The Economist.
0: Yeah. The Economist, right?
1: Yeah. Getting back to it, I, I think. In some organizations, obviously, like if you follow the money and that is pretty po- problematic, especially when you get things like the Pomelo's running stories in your paper. Well, and also then,
0: giving money to politicians and to city political projects. projects.
1: Yeah. Right. But I think, again, for me, there are fundamental tenets of journalism that are just really problematic, like yeah. feeling that you need to maintain a good relationship, for example, with... With people in power in order to report mm-hmm. stories and have access to their voices because they're the experts and so if you don't have access to that their expertise then you're fucked
0: my one of my favorite is the idea that to write a good story you have to have both sides and you have to get a quote from both exactly. sides.
1: exactly that's because that's being neutral or objective completely stupid
0: right without acknowledging that both sides might not be in the same power position
1: you're deciding the overton window also completely i mean you don't have every story about the economy, you don't, you're not interviewing a communist, you know? Right.
0: Well, yes, yes. What is both sides is a whole other thing, right? Yeah. What does that, what does that mean? Totally, totally.
1: Anyhow, this is kind of us all riffing on the fact that we are seeing this inadequacy, not just in the way the organizations operate, but also in how they're framing news, what stories they choose to tell, who they treat as uncritical experts above questioning our approach. And then we wanted to get into a couple of stories, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. And some examples I think of, uh, sometimes very egregious, I think sometimes less so, but more to illustrate how this perspective really permeates. And that local media really isn't that much different than any mainstream.
1: And I want to clarify, we, we get into this a little bit in like the defensiveness later on. But like...
0: I'm not defensive. Th- who's defensive?
1: With some journalists, we do have kind of beef with in, on the individual level because it's like...
0: They're just so bad.
1: Yeah, it's just hard to respect you.
0: They're so clearly biased.
1: Or like you're not even trying.
0: Which is fine. It's fine if you don't want to try, but then you can't claim some moral superiority, right? Like that's the thing. If you want to phone in this job, I I respect you for that.
1: Yeah. But like, for the most part, this is not an individual thing. We get that you're trying to do your job as a journalist and that you really deeply believe that there are certain things that you are doing that not only do you have to do, but you really value that. So we're nihilist, uh, yeah. So let's hop into some of these these stories, shall we? Near and dear to our heart, obviously, is propaganda, right? Just
0: mm, police propaganda. Uh, Pol- whether whether it be taking police at their word and just reprinting what they say, rewriting police stenography. Vermont Digger is not good at this at all, or they're very good at this, unfortunately. And WCAX will literally print anything a cop tells them regardless of the situation. Reprinting mugshots and arrest reports, particularly with no comment or quote from the person arrested or abolitionists or community justice groups. Having no sort of policy about when or if they would remove that mugshot. So, for example, if you get arrested for something, uh, moving past the whole politics around policing and the the racial and class-based element to it. Let's say you get arrested and you end up not getting convicted of anything, right? That mugshot still exists.
1: Yep. And again, in terms of like getting comment from a person who's been arrested or, you know, different community justice groups or whatever, like many activists don't actually want to talk to local media, right? As we've been over it. They don't trust how the story is going to be framed. They don't want to be added into an article as wildlife footage, which is mm. a phrase used from the folks at fair. And I love it. <laughs>
0: yeah. No, that's that's a good one. Such a good phrase.
1: Yeah. So like WCX, like, you see this co- constantly where it's like just unquestioningly reprinting press releases.
0: Right. Which I think goes back to the whole thing I was saying earlier, which is like local media exists to make money and to get clicks. And so if they could take a press release and turn it into an article and get advertisers for that, make 800 bucks or whatever, I don't know, then they're going to do it, right? Because that's their, their business model. At the end of the day, there's no underlying values. Yeah,
1: it's funny that part of the national reckoning around the last year of protests and everything with defund and abolish the NBR segment that I was talking about earlier, people are like, you know, in the newsroom, we would say, oh, this is a story. Check that out. And they would mean check it against the police report. And now people are starting to realize that maybe police reports are inaccurate and lie in shift.
0: Right. And cops, it's like, it's. Cops lie. What? My two favorite pieces of local copacanda. Of course. Once again. There's so many to choose from, but a November 2018 piece by Aiden Quigley in Vermont Digger titled Burlington's New Deputy Police Chief Has Found His True Calling, and it is about John Murad, and it's just like a a nice piece about how, you know, he went to college, and then he tried Hollywood, and then it didn't work out, and then he went to Harvard, or he went to Harvard before that, whatever, and then he went to New York, and then he joined the NYPD, and things were great, and he became best friends with former New York Police Commissioner William Brett who started to stop and frisk police. And it's just this uncritical, just, it's just gross, right? The end quote from Brandon Del Pozo in, in here is the best. They say policing is a calling and it's not necessarily about the money or the benefits, he said. And I think John Murat's desire to come home and wear the uniform in our city truly shows how much of a calling. What that Vomiting. Vomiting. And how is that city?
1: objective or neutral? Especially... In the context of a growing defund, abolish movement, right. Right. how do you look at this and say, no, this is just an objective piece? Again, Edwards. we would be fine with this piece. No, if you I would don't... never be fine with well, this of piece. Course. But yeah, support VT Digger, rigorous nonprofit news for Vermont. This is rigorous? What does that mean? <laughs> the thing yeah. is that most of the people who are listening to this are going to agree with us anyway, so we don't yeah. need to beat a dead... No,
0: no, 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 we don't, we don't. Sorry, horse. Uh-huh. <laughs> moving on from our favorite beer ad, uh, from Grace Ellison, also in Vermont Digger, September of 2020, last year, the title's is Brandon Del Pozo on Forgiveness as media rebranding and moving forward from Scandal. And I'm not going to get into it, but needless to say, it is one of, I would say, the most grotesque pieces of media that anyone has ever printed. It, it's gross. You couldn't pay. couldn't pay seven days to get a piece written this good about them.
1: So there's that. And then there's... Oh,
0: this one's weird.
1: Yeah, the VT Digger. (laughs) This is all VT Diggers. They
0: they all happen to be VT Digger. It is just because VT Digger is the worst of the local nonprofit news organizations. But that doesn't mean that Seven Days has not also done some terrible shit. So what happened was this was in 2019. And Galloway wrote an article about a state trooper who had said that they had overdosed. They were pulling someone over, they were in contact, they touched fentanyl, supposedly fentanyl white powder, and they overdosed. And I'm not a smart guy, but I know enough to know that you cannot overdose from touching fentanyl. Like this is not how it works, That's, it, 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 it's ridiculous. And so I saw that and I sent an email on the website, their website, Vermont Digger, if you have questions, comments, complaints or whatever, you send it to Ann Galloway. So I sent her an email.
1: She is the, the, the head CEO, of the Digger, and also she was the one who, who wrote this piece.
0: Right. And, you know, I was like, hey, the CDC has made it clear that's not the case. Really confused why. You would just reprint these officers' words with a little thought or insight into their claims. Yeah. And and responded, it was important to get the news out as it happened. The fact is the trooper overdosed. We will be following the story.
1: And they did follow the story.
0: And they definitely did. Well, they had three other pieces. But even before that, I emailed back. This was March 17th, 2019. And I had some more questions, right? Because I'm like, all right, if you're going to do this, what's your mugshot policy? You know, if this person who you you posted in the article that the trooper told you had this fentanyl, if he goes free, if it turns out that's not the case, are you going to retract it? Are you going to delete it? What's the policy here from Vermont Digger? And Anne responded by saying, we cover these kinds of incidents all the time and run photos when available. And yes, we cover the court cases. Guess you haven't been paying attention. Seems like you're part of Dave Silberman's AstroTurf campaign. And then I didn't respond. And then a minute later, she emailed me again saying, how much are you being paid by the cannabis industry? (laughs) Now, I don't want to make accusations that Anne Galloway might have Made an anti-Semitism by uh, assuming that Dave Silberman, who is clearly Jewish, and Charles Winkleman, who is also clearly Jewish. are right. <laughs> In bed together uh, by the cannabis industry an AstroTurf campaign. I, me, I would never claim anyone is anti-Semitic. Who am I to judge? I don't know what's in her heart. That being sent, it's a weird fucking response, let it's, me tell you.
1: It's a very, it's a very <laughs> strange response. And again, speaks to something that we'll get to in a minute about the strange kind of defensiveness.
0: Right. Any anytime there's any sort of pushback from anyone who's not in the media or sometimes even a politician, there's there's an amazing amount of pushback. But what's great is they did this article, right? And then there's just a series. March twentieth, twenty nineteen, fact check. Vermont's police chief said cops risk death from opioid exposure. He's wrong. April 16, 2019, cause of troopers collapse after drug stops, still unknown after lab analysis. And then June 2nd, 2019, police said a trooper collapsed from an incidental overdose. Now they're saying nothing. So here's the thing is they, they essentially admitted they were wrong, right? You know, write three more articles afterwards if you thought you were right. But instead of them apologizing, acknowledging they made a mistake, acknowledging maybe they shouldn't have taken the trooper at their word, Instead, they were like, "Well, the trooper lied to us," and that—that that was How the whole. How dare they! Right, that was the whole basis. Not we made a mistake in trusting this person. We shouldn't have just reprinted this propaganda for no reason. We should have maybe done some due diligence. Nope.
1: Yeah, because you know you can't take anonymous tips because you don't know the credibility of the source, but you can reprint word for word something that cops tell you because you do know that credibility.
0: I did five minutes of Google searching. Just fact jacket. It wasn't hard to be like, oh, the CDC says this isn't true. Throw that into the article. You know, if you're going to cop Gannon, at least do that. But they or like when somebody asks you
1: a very reasonable question about it in a private email, maybe respond with like, oh shit, you're right. Yeah. CDC does say that's not true. Maybe we should have, we should have included that. We should like, thanks for bringing this to our attention. We'll do better next time.
0: In your defense, I am one of those whiny weed Jews. So uh, what's next, Gabriel?
1: Next is local media treating politicians or even just those who can respond quickly to a story at face value as if they have no personal or political agenda, because that's the news.
0: I mean, Joan Shannon calling the cops on, on people for prank calling her is the clear example.
1: The way that this story was reported is told from Joan Shannon's perspective. Mm. She's allowed to frame it. She's the victim of this prank calling. This brings me back to the flip side of this, which is, of course, that activists or other community members who are just normal community members are treated with more caution mm. because it's assumed that they are pushing some sort of agenda or perhaps need to be fact checked differently from the people who already have considerable platforms. They have an agenda because they're politicians. You know, this is what the conversation that we had with, with VPR started on. We had a a Twitter conversation with Jane Lindholm, right? And it it was brought up that after Charles was harassed, the mayor was invited on to Vermont edition for an interview and then questions from the public.
0: For like 45 minutes.
1: And the argument was that, yes, he's a politician and different people, different stories are covered in different ways. Those are editorial decisions, right? But one of the comments that like, maybe I shouldn't read into too much, but one of the comments about why they would do that is that basically with activists and community members, they need to be fact checked a different way.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that was the impression was that essentially politicians can be trusted at their word. But uh, yeah, if, if you don't have some sort of credibility in the community and, you know, which community that is, is a whole other thing. But but if you don't have that credibility, then you need to either build that credibility or, you know, then they have to spend all of this time making sure you're not just lying out of your ass, which is something politicians and cops never, ever do.
1: So we had a conversation with Pitfeend. Pitfeend jumped in this conversation with us on Twitter, and there was a follow through Zoom meeting with Jane Lindholm and several other people at VPR. And I just want to play a clip from some of his explanations about how this doesn't really make sense that we're going to treat politicians as the go-to first voices that we want to hear. You know, like we understand why you need to interview politicians. Like we understand that that's part of your job is to hold them accountable. We get it. Nobody's saying that you shouldn't have Politicians.
0: Well, I am because they rarely ever actually hold them accountable. So what you know, there's really follow-up. There's rarely the research needed to actually hold politicians accountable. They'll say something or they'll weasel their way out. I mean, in, in that interview, Jane Lindholm doesn't make Moreau answer any questions. You know, it's a friendly conversation mm-hmm. with a little bit of push. Yeah, just a little bit of
1: push. And Pit Fiend also points out politicians and these people at power often have media coaching.
0: If you have to go out in front of the media every week or whatever you're going to be better at it than someone who only goes there when they've been harassed by a cop or whatever it might be. Right. So let's, yeah, let's listen to that. I
2: understand why you would have powerful people on the show, why the mayor gets more airtime than, you know, me, but like it would, I I would be more inclined to, to listen uh, to these stories. If there were worse kind of more acknowledgement of those power imbalances and, and, more pushback uh, because it often seems to me like it's an exercise in kind of consensus building Hmm. and there will be other voices to come on uh, and state their case. But as part of the format, it's like, Oh, we have 10 people who don't know who this is. Even if they say, hi, I'm bill from wherever you still don't really, there's no context there. You know, uh, framed against the mayor, framed against the treasurer. And I personally think that if, Maybe it's not your job, but I'm looking for a journalist who helps cure those power balances more. Like you ask a cutting question, but the follow-up doesn't doesn't cut as well. It's like they can cut of answer how they want to the answer. And we're talking about people who often have, you know, media coaching. Like they're good at this. And while then having caller callers be able to respond to that or, or or participate is good, like there's still a big imbalance there.
1: Along the same lines.
0: Number three. Yeah. Treating those with degrees accolades as unbiased experts. Our favorites. Friend of the pod. We got to have mine at some point. <laughs> Art Wolf, huh? uh, who is the, the most egregious example of this. He is always treated as the go-to guy for local economics and labor questions mm-hmm. and housing. He is an incredibly conservative former UVM professor. He is a... Staunch pro-capitalist. He would probably tell you he's a staunch pro-capitalist, but it's not like that's ever mentioned at all. They're not like Art Wolf, capitalist economist.
1: No, but it's interesting, kind of as as an aside, it's interesting that the way that journalism is pushed at this point is as a fundamentally patriotic pro-America thing, right? Because it is essential for our democracy, right? There's a level of patriotism in yep. in journalism. Of course, it aligns with capitalism being touted as American and pro America. Like this is who we are. I mean, there's a reason that the McCarthy era committee there's, there's was a reason. The, every the pro-
0: organization supported the Iraq War. There's a reason all the major journalists were were cheerleading the Iraq War. Yeah. Also, Vermont Digger. Man, I mean, we're really hitting on Vermont Digger hard. We
1: are. It's kind of surprising. I didn't. I Um, mean, whatever. It's fine.
0: Oh, they're columnists. All of them. They're all old white dudes. Seven days. They keep replacing their, their political writer with one old white dude after another. It's hilarious to watch. You know, no one under the age of like 60 has any sort of intelligence around local politics, I guess.
1: And a lot of what this serves to do, bringing in these these columnists
0: right they're not reporters so they can be a little right. they could be a little witchy-washy they could be a little give their perspective a little bit
1: right be a little edgy i mean that's what op-eds are but anyhow so you bring in these experts and a lot of times what it feels like is exercises in consensus building
0: right i would like to include right now the clip in the big lebowski where walter's like you want a toe i can get you a toe that's how I feel about experts, right? Like, you need an expert that says blah, blah, blah? I can get you an expert that says blah, blah, blah. <laughs> oh, you need a, you need a guy with a, a PhD who, who says that you can turn children into bricks and build houses with them, and that's morally acceptable? Yeah, we, we got this uh, we got this guy right here. He's a philosopher.
1: I got you right here. <laughs> yeah, this gets back to the idea of objectivity, right? Or like reporting both sides. What people want and... In whatever fucking information age or however like terrible way we want to label this, the d- deluge of information that we have, what people want is to know actually what you think, what you believe, and how that informs what you are choosing to tell us.
0: Yeah, yeah journalists are story writers, right? Like they're they're picking and choosing a story, and they're picking and choosing the the people to quote, and right. Sometimes they have very strict deadlines. And so they choose the first person who responds or they choose their friend or a source they've had for a while.
1: Or again, people who are available eight to five because that's their work day. And so if you can't take time out of work for a half an hour interview, whatever the case may be, yeah, it's people who are easily accessible because they're in the professional class. Working class people don't have as much flexibility, and it is really hard work to establish relationships with people who are working class or part of the underclass. Yeah, it,
0: take, it takes a lot of work to build that trust, and
1: and then just actually have access. That's not going to just throw them into the mix for the, your wildlife footage. I'm going to use that as many times as yeah, I can. No, in this. I like that. I, I like fucking that love lot. it. Um, the next thing that we've been thinking about is defensiveness in journalism.
0: I prefer to frame it as the journalist's ego. I'm Freudian now.
1: So my take on this. Is which it probably might be different from Charles because Charles has had more time in the fray to just get really pissed at people and not have as much patience for their bullshit. I'm and a I, yeah, I think maybe because of people like us, you know, like the random podcasting cranks in the age of social media and this frenzied podcast fad that we've run into, especially in the midst of a pandemic. Everyone thinks that they can play journalist, whether you're posting stuff on Facebook or starting a podcast or tweeting all the, you know, like about...
3: Are you on
0: Reddit finding who the real Boston Marathon bomber was? That did actually happen. It, it ended badly.
1: Anyhow, everyone at this point is skeptical of journalists and of news. And proverbial tomatoes are being slung from all sides. I don't necessarily want to downplay the level of skill and dedication that it actually takes to be a good journalist or to present good journalism. I don't claim to be a journalist, and also I get that nobody is perfect. So, like, I yeah, I get that a lot of journalists right now are, they're probably overworked and underpaid and underappreciated, right? A lot of journalists are actually attacked and targeted and can be in real danger. So we we get some people are actually like putting their ass on the line. There can be some forgiveness there, but I guess without knowing exactly what what I'm thinking about this, <laughs> I guess there needs to be a shift from getting defensive about mm. how things have been done, like, dude, this is the way I did the article because this is my job. I'm a journalist. This is the way that people do things, to actually reflecting on the merits of the ways you're telling your story and whose voices are there and what framing you're giving it, uh, because nobody believes you're neutral. Also, with journalists themselves, there should be they a should certain all level. feel bad. No, there should be a certain level of solidarity with journalists. Of course, like the working class, like proletariat bourgeoisie is not as clear cut as it is, right? As it yes. like once was, right? But a lot of these people are just like working class people you know, trying to jur- make things.
0: Well, all journalists are working class. They're getting paid a wage, right? Right. They're um, wage-,
1: wage earners. Yeah.
0: But yes, and that, and that's like I think the most interesting thing is that for so long, capitalists, have, I guess, convinced journalists that they shouldn't be a part of the working class or shouldn't align their values and perspective with the world because it's class. not neutral. Mm.
1: Right? And and so here's the thing. I think that brings us nicely into our last point. I think the last point and what for me is most important in this moment that the, the media co-op that, that we are part of is trying to change and fundamentally rethink, right? Which is that most media coverage has a glaring absence of working class voices working class perspectives and importantly a framing that That is
0: pro working class is pro
1: working class right and so yeah we can talk about what the elephant in the room right that we haven't that we haven't talked about because we've been so busy shitting on bt digger which is like you know it's not fair almost around this time last year almost a year ago people were fucking burning seven days in the streets
0: September 2020, it was a piece by Chelsea Edgar, how Black Lives Matter protesters occupied a park, captivated a city, and got some of what they wanted. And it begins with one of the most amazing, amazing leads to a story ever. On a Thursday evening in early September, hundreds of white girls carrying cardboard signs milled around in Burlington's Battery Park. Not even white women, by the way. Waiting to be told what to do.
1: There were other waiting kinds of... to be told what to do. So, like infantilizing these people first of uh, all. I mean, these that's are adults. M- that's
0: misogyny. That's misogyny. If I've ever heard it. Oh, they're white girls who are just waiting to be told why. Why can't they just do what they want? Um, an older man in tivas, a guy with a long ponytail and a handmade cardboard sign that read, "It's time for all of us to arm ourselves because #hashtag fascism and white supremacy won't simply be voted out." But the vast majority were females of the TikTok demographic, dressed in black, sporting some combination of blonde stones, ironic tube socks and leg hair. Now, it's so
1: funny because like even in the pictures here, like the protesters blocking traffic, it looks like a mixed gender group.
0: And we cannot assume anyone's gender, but just that one paragraph. Oh,
1: That's the lead.
0: That's yeah. Right. Like, I mean, that's framing the whole article right there.
1: You can completely read what this is trying to do. And it is trying to discredit this as being a bunch of people who are, they're being infantilized, right? So they are probably ignorant. They're a joke. Mm. You know, they they don't know what they're doing. They're sheep Mm. waiting Mm. to be herded into doing something. This piece is dripping with disdain for protesters. And the reason why
0: was because no one would talk to her. Her editor made her write this article. It wasn't an easy article to write because no one would talk to her, right? And, and it's not fair just to blame Chelsea. Like there's editors who looked at this and were like, "Yeah, great lead. Let's edit it a little bit, you know, wherever it might be." And so it's not just her. But at the end of the day, the fact that people said, "We don't need you. You won't help us. You're not on our side. So why are we going to talk to you?" In response, there was just this vile article written, right? <laughs> and so then in response to that, the protesters took free copies of Seven Days and burned it. And journalists condemned it as an attack on the First Amendment.
1: Which is amazing. Which is
0: important because Seven Days doesn't exist online. Uh, They're gone. Now, don't try to look them up on the Internet because the protesters took them out. First Amendment is done.
1: Yeah. And the other thing that's, I mean, it's fascinating about this piece is you can only assume that they're standing by the integrity, the journalistic integrity of this piece, because it's still up with... No, no caveat. And
0: no, no, and it's nothing. No retractions. No redactions.
1: I want to take some other clips of the conversation with Pitfeend and the folks at VPR. The conversation started off with the folks at VPR putting a good amount of pressure on Pitfeend to reveal who he was and not be anonymous, even though he had agreed to an anonymous conversation.
0: Yeah, and I think the craziest part about this is that it, it, they were trying to bully you, right? They're trying to intimidate. They used threats. They, they said they were not going to be part of the call if he didn't unmask himself.
1: I don't. Yeah, uh, I don't know. That's strong language for my for my taste, you know. But the, but the thing the thing that's ridiculous to me is, right, Pit Fiend wanted to maintain the slightest level of anonymity in our informal conversation with VPR. OK, he wasn't there as a source for any story. He was there as a community member. As a media critic. Just to offer... Right? feedback. A community member who is known to me, at least, it was very difficult for them to get beyond this somewhat superficial idea of rejecting anonymity. He gave much more identifying information about himself than I had in the context of the conversation. He gave his first name. He said different things that he's part of in the community, which once he did that with his first name and other information, all it took was a very quick Google search. And so Okay. So this is another example for me, which is like this bullshit idea of anonymity. You're taught as a journalist that that is a sacred tenet. You do not take anonymous sources. They have to at least reveal themselves to you and you can maintain their safety and their anonymity. But
0: I put your trust in the journalism gods.
1: Right. But but the thing is, they are like unquestioningly tied to that. I say that this is a superficial idea for them because, again, there's no reason, there's no fact-checking that they had to do. There's nothing he was telling them where they when were going to have to fact-check and see. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, the reason that we got into this conversation on VPR anyway in the first place is basically because Charles made some comment about Jane Lindholm that he didn't even tag her in. And it was basically making fun of people like me who I, I have VPR playing in my house six to eight hours a day. I was a member of the community forum uh, for the last two years.
0: You got credentials.
1: I know, don't hate expert, me. Expert,
0: expert here. If you an expert. Shh,
1: I give these people money. <laughs> um, anyhow, there's no reason for them to be like, oh, we can't take feedback from this community yeah. member who is an activist and who has some very valid reasons for not wanting t- to reveal who he is. And here's a quote from him saying a little bit about that.
2: It's hard for people who are activists or organizers who are, who may be facing retaliation, who, who are at employment concerns to engage with the media when there's kind of this standard, I, I don't see what my, uh, face or full knowledge of my identity brings to this. If it's like, I'm just, on I'm, I'm a listener or I'm a voice. There'd been a battery park, similar situation. And I, I know this is real touchy and it's not something that can just be done because it requires you know, building relationships between some of these people. But there is a reason that, you know, the young people down there, younger than me, I did not spend a night there, pretty much told every journalist who showed up to go away. And then the one guy willing to talk to the journalist was an abuser. And I think to avoid those kinds of situations, it takes a a style, I guess, of investigative journalism that we don't see that much anymore. Um, But I... Think that that's the kind of work that needs to be done to like address concerns that people like I have. To generalize that, you know, I think if you guys want to cover this stuff more authentically, like you're going to have to put in that a level of effort that isn't there for like a politician. Like, oh yeah, there are politicians who are like, oh, I ain't going to talk to the press. But both you and the politician actually have a vested interest in media and a lot of activists they're like I don't I actually don't want to talk to you yeah. it's not I'm not playing a game to give favorable coverage or or a platform spot to you know I'm not negotiating with you by being coy I literally don't care if you're there I want you to go away In fact, you know for better or worse I, I want there to be more coverage of activism but I know why people have come to that conclusion And I think as a whole the press in Vermont is going to have to really dig into how they do things if they want to crack those eggs, if they want to report on that. Like, you have to have that trust ahead of time, before the action.
0: And there's something really important here. So this just came out. It's June 17th we're recording this. This came out yesterday. Another piece by Chelsea Edgar called Kick to the Curb After a Year in Hotels, Homeless Vermonters Prepare to Live in Tents and Cars. And I bring this up because I think it, it really shows, A, what what was saying, and B, how the media dropped the fucking ball on this one. It started off as, a, it, honestly, it started off as a pretty decent piece. But then they talked to one motel outreach worker at COTS, Committee on Temporary Shelter, about how her supervisors had reprimanded her for advocating too strongly for her clients in the motels. And she talks a bit more about it. And they reach out. Chelsea Edgar reaches out to Rita Markley. And there's also concern about random inspections. And Rita Markley says, well, those are normal. That's not against anyone's rights. This outreach worker had been previously homeless herself for six months in 2018. She had even lived at Harbor Place. And I think that was too much information to give. And I don't blame her for it. But the reason I say that is because where it ends goes, when I ran this anecdote by Markley, she seemed nonplussed about. Take it with a grain of salt. I tell my kids to take things with a grain of salt, she said. Within an hour of my conversation with Markley, the outreach worker was informed that her contract with COTS would be terminated at the end of this month. After the story was published, Markley told Seven Days that she had not been involved in firing the worker and that the decision had been made in May before I interviewed her.
1: Wait, so I had trouble following what just happened. Chelsea Edgar is doing this story on yep. what, what happens now that... The state of emergency is ending for people who it, are it's experiencing homelessness. about the state of emergency
0: is ending, but, but also how essentially the nonprofits, you know, not in those words, but nonprofits have not been doing a great job. They have been a part of creating and maintaining some cracks that people have fallen into. Mm-hmm. The issue that I find here, right, is here's someone who was previously homeless, risked their job and got fired for it, right? Like... I, it It's hard for me to believe that this person's contract just happened to end
1: <laughs> so they risked their job were... by speaking with a reporter and speaking critically of yes. the organization
0: and speaking in a way where they gave so much identifying information right? How many people work at cots who who used to live at our place mm-hmm. right There's not that many employees at cots it's a small it's a small community but to get the story told, this person I think was fired because of it. I don't really yeah. You know, Markley can say what she wants, that it was made in May, the supervisor might have known about it. Maybe this employee even told Reno about it. It was like, hey, I'm talking to the reporter just because it was before she was interviewed doesn't mean anything, right? Yeah.
1: This is one of the challenges of getting more rank and file
0: voices. I right, think because about- Right, you can't be anonymous. You have to prove and the reporter has to prove to the audience that this person really exists. But you give up so much information.
1: The whole thing with Chelsea Edgar in the Battery Street Park, you know, she interviewed this guy who's...
0: The one, the one activist who would talk to her, who it turned out had a history of sexual abuse, sexual harassment. And when you talk there, you try to throw all the organizers under the bus, right? And shit talk them.
1: Yeah. So somebody who was airing grievances. And but that it.
0: worked for the story, right? But it uh, worked for the
1: story. So you, you have that relationship building where it's like, well, yeah, of course people don't want to talk to the me media, right? But then no, also you have stories where, for example, employees are told not to speak to the press. Yeah. There was a story about Elderwood, the nursing home, when there was a state investigation going on, right? And there were posters all over the place saying that, <laughs> that employees were not supposed to talk the press.
0: And if you don't have a union, you're fired for that, right? If they catch you, you're gone.
1: So that's it. It is a huge challenge. And it's something that that's really difficult to navigate.
0: So I, I want to. Get back for just one second and then we can, I think we yep. can, we can finish up. I, I do think that what VPR did to Pit Fiend was an attempt to bully and intimidate him.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And the reason I'm using that language in particular is because the Vermont Journalism Alliance, which includes Seven Days, Valley News, VPR, VT Digger, WCAX, when they condemned the quote-unquote, attack on the First Amendment when Seven Days was burned. Oh, that's right. They said, and I quote, the Vermont Journalism Alliance condemns the attempts to bully and intimidate Seven Days by some individuals involved in ongoing racial justice protests in Burlington. Hoarding and burning newspapers is an act of censorship. It is meant to strike fear in journalists, covering the important public dialogue around racial justice and police brutality. I guess that's what matters for me, and why I I, I use that language is because well, it's like,
1: the power dynamic that's an imbalance. Yeah, as a
0: journalist, you do have power. I'm sorry. As a as a random activist, you don't have power. As a random employee who's being interviewed, you don't have power. And and so for them to just ignore that power dynamic is gross. And yeah.
1: And so another another consideration here for this discussion about this glaring absent of working class voices is that seven days. I mean, there have been numerous mutual aid pieces from different news, news organizations. One of the earlier ones was a piece in seven days that was, I mean, it was a reasonable treatment. It featured a lot of the voices of the organizers, but it was a community interest story, right? There wasn't any digging. There wasn't any looking beyond. It was, again, to use that phrase, it's wildlife footage. Right? Mm. It's community interest, wildlife footage. There's no like, why are we here? How did it get to the point where, in order for people to have very basic needs met, in order for people to have groceries at the end of their months, how did it get to be that the way to fix that has been that these networks have to spring up to bridge that gap? There's no structural analysis, there's no analysis of it. It's just wildlife footage. You get some interviews, you get some quotes, and get a couple pictures and wrap but, a bow on it, you know, and
0: everyone gets to feel good. That it, this is it is and that's in the, the community thing. right? Going it's on. weird
1: that that's it's a feel- so good, good story.:
0: I think the last one that I want to bring up briefly is that in 2017, oh yes, St- Stephen Crowder came to Vermont. Stephen Crowder is an incredibly right-wing piece of shit. And if you don't know him, don't Google him. you're better off without it. But he showed up to essentially intimidate and harass and, and frankly, threatened transgender Vermonters. And he took video inside a Pride Center meeting. And a lot of the, the people involved in that video and organizers had asked Seven Days to not write an article about it. And they were like, you know, the less uh, yep. attention this gets, the better. Like The
1: less sensationalized this is because this person... Is an attention whore. Like that's, well, he's because in the, the business vid- of the it. The video
0: is up there, right? It's yeah. one thing if the video didn't exist, maybe then you could talk about it. But as long as that video was up there, it was.
1: You're putting it, people, trans risk. people's lives in danger. Yep.
0: Yeah. And Taylor Dobbs wrote that and uh, it went through, even though the people who the article was about were like, please don't, because this can hurt us.
1: Yeah. Again, relationship building, man.
0: This relationship building, like what what responsibilities should a journalist have? What responsibilities yeah. should a, a newspaper have? And if the responsibilities are write the things that are newsworthy, which often when I ask when mugshots are published or whatever, that's often what local news organizations have said. Yeah. If it's newsworthy, the fuck does that mean? <laughs> then you yeah. write
1: it. So what I do want to say ju- just about that story about like what's your responsibility? Right, the idea of neutrality of giving space to both sides of whatever issue is at hand or reporting things that are newsworthy because they are newsworthy is inherently not neutral because you're dealing with power imbalances and the reality of who is allowed to shape the narratives of community news. And so the idea of who is able to be impartial, we already know who is allowed to feign impartiality. And it's not, you know, not BIPOC neighbors like taicia green who the mayor screwed up and said she needed to be replaced because you know we need people who are impartial but yeah that's the reality of being objective in news reporting it it just brings us back to the status quo every time and the status quo is those who are in power continue framing the stories hell yeah they don't get made to look like clowns but protesters or activists are made to look like clowns.
0: Or if they do look like clowns, they get the opportunity to look better at a later date.
1: So anyhow, these criticisms that we have, the uncritically repeating press releases and, you know, parroting the words of those in power, whether it be propaganda or words from politicians, the fact that we treat people as experts without critically going through what their actual beliefs are and treating them as if they don't have an agenda. Whereas working class voices are omitted because those are biased or unable to be fact-checked or treated as wildlife footage. And then being super defensive when these things are pointed out because... Your job is sacred, and democracy, and freedom, and First Amendment rights, and all of these buzzwords they're, that they're turn into the just state. For, you're right. But it's like so there are all the stools
0: these stools cannot stand on three legs. You need four legs.
1: You need an explosion of stools. Is what you need. Explosive stools. There you go. Three Anyhow, legs. so considering all of that, we are moving in a direction of hope, which is very strange for the two of us.
0: Let me tell you but something. We've 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 departed. We are now into Hopeland.
1: We are in We are in Hopeland. We, have, we
0: are in Hopeland.
1: We have arrived. I mean, again, working with children is also fundamentally an act of hope, and it's something that we both do. But yeah, so we look forward to The Rake, The Rake Vermont.
0: The Rake Vermont? RakeVT.org should be up.
1: We're working really hard to rethink not only the structure of a news organization, meaning like it's diffuse, it's a co-op. There's not a hierarchy. Everybody has an equal say and equal stake in making this. Right. And so we're trying to walk the walk also and not just talk the talk. Takes time. And it takes time. Yeah. We'd like for you to hear from some of the other voices of this co-op and kind of hear in their words why we're doing this.
3: We've needed a media outlet run by the people for the people for a long time now. Seven days is only good for two things, spreading bourgeoisie propaganda and kindling. I guess three things, if you have pets that could use it for bedding. Burlington Free Press is a fucking joke. They're paywalled to the point where a working class person has to burn precious time jumping through hoops to dodge the paywall, or pay for a subscription. Obviously, I can't comment on their content, except when they have an editor who's just randomly transphobic on Main. rake VT is a revolutionary political organ that allows the underrepresented revolutionary masses to have a voice, and to see what's going on in their community without the filters put on the media by the capitalist class. Seizing the means of the narrative is an important precondition to seizing the means of production. We are a cooperative model, so we have no bosses and can publish what needs to be said. As Rosa Luxemburg said, the most revolutionary thing one can do is always to proclaim loudly what is happening. At Verique VT, we stand in solidarity with our comrades in a tangible, material way by platforming those left behind by liberal identity politics. We do not need a more diverse bourgeoisie. We need a revolutionary collective formed from the masses of oppressed people whose stories are not told, whose voices are not heard, because they see capitalism for what it truly is because they oppose the mainstream media's imperialist agenda, because they desire a society where all are truly free. If our mission and values appeal to you, please reach out. Don't be a stranger, comrades. Solidarity forever. We'll end
0: on that note. So, Fuck uh... the police, coming straight from... <laughs> Ooh, Now if you see uh, Brie writing anything, know that she's anti-police. That bias is not going away, let me tell you. So, uh.
1: As always, thank you for listening.
0: All of Vermont's wonder, none of its trolls.
1: None of its motherfucking
0: trolls. We are unsolicited bridge picks. Send us your bridge picks, but don't wink. Well, why
2: are we here? You know, why, why is this the only way?
1: Saque <laughs> mucha otra caca.